0: Greetings, rabble-rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. Welcome back to Blueprints. Election after election, we have been faced with dismal voter turnout numbers. When we get the results we don't like, with a government we don't like, many of us often blame those who don't vote, on these results, but I don't think that's particularly useful, nor do I think it's true. It isn't the fault of non-voters that we've gotten to this point of poor representation. I believe this is by design. So I asked David Moskrop to come on the show and have this discussion with me. I enjoy reading his views, and I think he's particularly insightful when it comes to Canadian politics, and I surely wasn't disappointed. In this episode, Diminished Democracy... We examine some of the reasons folks aren't headed to the polls anymore and what that means under a representative democracy. Are there factors we can address to increase the vote? Is that what we want? Is that what political parties even want? Some suggest the trend away from electoral politics presents a direct challenge to democracy. Instead, we're going to ask, was it ever even meant to be a real democracy? Or is low voter turnout an intended byproduct of a system designed to alienate us from our political agency. Let's just get right into it with David. Welcome, David. Thank you for joining us on Blueprints. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Sure. My name is David Moscrop. I'm a contributing columnist with The Washington Post, a writer with Jacobin, a fairly regular writer with The Globe and Mail. I have a, a Substack stack on, on democracy and other things and a couple of podcasts of my own. And a book. And I'm starting to forget. I have several different jobs, just struggling to make it through the day and uh, return all my emails. That's pretty that's pretty much it. I guess that's a lot.
0: That is a lot. And it's funny, like when you start talking about what you do, I at first you think, oh, he's mainstream media. Right. You get you, you have uh, quite the name drop there with with the publications that you work with but also clearly have to rely on a substack so you you have a bit of independent uh, flair to you. Um, I, I have that disclaimer just because we, we did an episode on independent media versus mainstream media and, you know, we weren't too kind. How do you see yourself?
1: I, I'm uh, as critical of, of mainstream media as, as most. Uh, also, you know, uh, my variety of of left politics is that look i mean we 're all bound up in structures and we 're limited and conditioned by those structures and we have to operate within them even as we seek to to change them or in some cases I replace them or undermine them or whatever you may be and you know you have to sort of embrace that that contradiction and, and I do, but I also do it deliberately because i I like being in the mainstream. And I like bringing ideas to the mainstream that otherwise might not be there. And I like being able to shape the conversation in ways that that I might not be able to shape it from, from the outside. And I don't think there's any one way to do left politics, but I do think that's a useful part of it. And I've been able to sneak in some perspectives into these places. I say sneak, but there's nothing nefarious about it. They knew what they were getting into, so did I that otherwise wouldn't be there. And, and I, you know, flattered myself to think maybe I've changed a few minds too. That said, I spent a lot of time with independent media too, uh, boosting them, writing for them, talking with those folks. And, and it's made a big difference for me.
0: I appreciate your takes. Um, I, I would say, I'll be honest, I mostly follow you on Twitter. And I, I'm shocked when I see that you do also write for these main publications, not because any personal take. It just uh, it shocks me they would employ someone with such views on democracy. Not that you're anti-democratic, but you do challenge the concept and and the idea that we're living in a democracy and and its its validity of sorts. And that's something I want to kind of explore today through our discussion of low voter turnout and what it means for our quote-unquote democracy. Just to give people a little background, when we say low voter turnout, it's not all horrible. When we look federally, Canadian politics, the voter turnout is comparable to the U.S. There's been a steady decline, but we see ebbs and flows based on interest in the election, and obviously COVID played a part. But generally, we're supposed to be happy around... 68 70%. Do you think that's a sufficient number?
1: No, I, I don't. And in part because you know in a in a single member plurality system what we use federally called, you know, best best known as first past the post, um that's not just I've got a pup behind me just for listeners who is uh the the sweetest dog you'll ever meet. Her name is Sam, but she gets a little bit naughty when she gets anxious or when I'm not paying attention to her. So you may hear her acting out, um, but that's just part of it. Uh, So, you know, in in first past the post, you get, say, 60% will form a majority government uh, with, you know, sorry, you'll get a majority government with with a 60% turnout. 38, 39% of those folks voted for the governing party, who then turns around and exercises the full... uh, barely mitigated power not fully unchecked but barely mitigated power of the federal government with you know one in five voters or something like that and and you'll get the vast majority of folks either stayed home and didn't vote for them or or expressly showed up and voted for someone else and the risk there is well you you get a government that doesn't reflect the will of of the people and we can get into the question of well you know would it change if everybody turned out, or what do you do about people who stay home? Haven't they just abrogated their duties? Haven't they just said, "Well, I don't care"? I don't. I don't think that's true. But we can get into that. Um, but then the question you have to ask yourself is, well, you know, are you okay if if only one in five people have expressly given consent to be governed by the governing party? And then, of course, that's that's the high lo- that's the high number. It gets even lower than that when you start saying, "Look at the Ontario election," and we're talking, you know, forty three percent turnout, so on and so forth. So I think it's deeply problematic because ultimately it just isn't representative of the preferences of the of the population.
0: And they do a lot with these so-called mandates, right, especially under a majority government. Uh, What David described there earlier, we tend to call a false majority. So they have the majority of the power and especially federally that essentially sits with the prime minister. Um, Not even his caucus holds that much power. If we look at the provincial election and what Doug Ford claims to be doing with his mandate from even fewer voters, you're right. That starts to be a huge problem because it's used to justify sweeping changes as though we supported it. Uh, That even leaves out the fact that half the stuff they do, do isn't a part of their campaign. So they, in fact, don't have mandates for it. But. You mentioned provincial. I want to go even a little bit closer to home. We had recent municipal elections across Canada, not all provinces, but here in Ontario, BC, Uh, we did. And those figures are, I think, the most worrisome for me. I guess they're most recent. But also we did an episode on just how critical municipal politics are in our lives. Uh, both how they impact our daily lives far more sometimes than provincial or federal, and they hold potential for a lot more changes on the left. It, it's supposed to be a more accessible level of politics, but the participation level is dismal. If we look at Toronto, and I know the Merrill race there was kind of a, a write-off to everybody knew who was going to win, but that was 28% this year. And I'm having trouble explaining that to people how bad that is. That's under 30%. That's less than a third of people that are eligible to vote. So we can get into the fact that a lot of people aren't even eligible to vote, but are still beholden to the same rules that will apply from these elected officials. In my riding, It would, or in my area, 17%. And so when they're this low, and we can get into the factors, and we will, why people don't vote, I start to question the legitimacy of the system. I guess it also matters, we should examine who is doing the voting, right? So is it the same people walking away? Is it a, still an even mix of our population going to the polls so it could still be argued as representative? <laughs> We've now just allotted 30 percent of us to vote for our delegates who then represented such a disjointed representation at this point. But if we look at who's doing the voting, I think it also becomes a bit of a problem. and And that links into the barriers of voting as well.
1: It's a huge problem, and it's the the counterpoint to people who say, well, low turnout isn't a problem, because if everybody turned out, you would get the same outcome. You'd just get a greater number of voters, so it doesn't matter. So they're effectively saying, well, look, what you're actually getting is a random sampling of the population. It's low, but it's, it's enough, and so it doesn't matter. That's demonstrably untrue. So point one is that's just not true. We don't have the best data most comprehensive data on who turns out and who doesn't, but we do know a few things that, that are, tend to be true, and we can make some inferences from that. One, we know that older folks vote more often than younger folks, and that there are appreciable differences in the things that they prefer. Their political preferences vary structurally. So you're immediately in most elections getting um, an asymmetry between older folks and younger folks, and therefore an overrepresentation of the preferences of the older folks who vote. So that's one group. We know that marginalized people vote less often than, than those who are better off. So we once again see the replication of a structural imbalance between those who have and those who are struggling which no doubt, of course, then perpetuates the very system that alienates those folks on the margins in the first place, and the cycle continues. So that's a huge problem as well, uh, particularly municipally, where these folks are interacting with, say, the police, in many cases, you know, day-to-day, week-to-week, but have very little say and check over the direction of of policing in their communities. So there's another one. Um, You know, uh, I don't have data that breaks down along uh, racialized lines, uh, so, so I don't know, but uh, that that could be a group to to explore as well. But then, of course, you mentioned the folks who can't vote at all, which is uh, you know residents who who aren't uh, who aren't citizens, uh, and others who ought to have the right to vote. I've been saying this for years. We should lower the barrier to vote. So that uh, folks who live in these communities have a vote there, because as you mentioned, they are bound by the rules, the decisions that are made in municipalities, in provincial uh, provinces and, and the federal government impact them significantly, in many cases, probably uh, more than than folks who are citizens, right? Uh, so they, they ought to have that right to vote. So there, you see immediately that that there are um, different interests different structural turnouts and therefore if everybody turned out and if we expanded the voting base you would presumably get different outcomes.
0: It's difficult to measure that though, right? It's we can always look to the massive amount of people who aren't voting and know from what we know that they are likely more marginalized, right? Because we know education and income play a key role in who votes more. But There's really no telling how they will vote. But I do, I agree with you, David. I think the results would be greatly different, um, taking these things into account, because let's just talk about the barriers a little bit, because I think it helps explain who's voting and why. Definitely, if you look at uh, Elections Canada, they'll break it down by age and gender, which is binary on their website. So let's just start with, you know, obviously that's a problem. There's really not a huge difference between men and women. I think it's like 3% generally, almost in all of the age groups. They tend to follow the same trends as well, from election to election and through the ages. But certainly, it increases with age until you get to 75, the 75 and overgrowth, and it just drops. That tells you there's definitely barriers in place, right? But as we get older, we generally have more money, some of us, and free time. That plays a lot into who can vote. That tells me we're not doing a very good job at making it easy to vote. So if we let rich people with a lot of free time, which means they don't have a lot of perhaps stressors in their life, things that, you know, need to be addressed through politics. It's funny that the people that are most seemingly indifferent to politics are the ones that are actually voting in it. Education, though, I think I was really interested when I read the difference in education, because one would think people understand politics more. They're more educated, so they vote. They understand its value. But that's not true. The studies show that the political understanding wasn't any greater with graduates. So more people are voting, even though they still don't understand the politics in front of them. Something is still compelling them to get to the ballot, but it's not an understanding of the system. That kind of puzzles me. Do you have any explanation for that?
1: I think they understand enough to understand, to recognize that their class interests are being represented in the mainstream by competitive political parties and competitive candidates, right? And I I think, you know, in this country, we pretend there's no such thing as class. And in this country, we, we fail to sufficiently analyze power, especially in the mainstream media. And we fail to discuss class, especially in the mainstream media. It's two of the things I try to, to bring to that, to my work into the mainstream. And if you look at class and power, uh, I think it explains turnout, that those who, who see their preferences and their priorities represented in mainstream political discourse turn out because they're incentivized to turn out. And those who don't say, "Well, why should I waste my time? This has nothing to do with me. Uh, even if it did, I'm not going to get. I'm going to lose again because you know the folks who have decided these priorities are their priorities have no interest in mine, um, and so I'm going to stay home. And if you look at a few instances where turnout really jumped, say 2015, that was in part because I, I think, especially young young people and Indigenous people. Uh, People looked at the 2015 federal election and said, oh, well, I care about electoral reform. I want to see a better federal electoral system, a fairer one. Of course, they were probably thinking PR and, you know, they then had the rug pulled out from under them. When they look, well, I care about, you know, the the legalization of, of cannabis because I think it's a raw deal that folks are... Uh, allowed to drink, but they can't smoke pot or these people are getting picked up off the streets and given criminal records that ruin their lives for, you know, having a few grams of marijuana or whatever. And they turned out and they saw the potential for a generational change. They saw, you know, Justin Trudeau talk about how, look, I'm going to run deficits, not not Tom Mulcair, of course, of the NDP, who was opposed to that. But Justin Trudeau, who had flanked him on the left, say, well, we're going to we're going to run deficits because we need to invest in in our social uh, uh, safety structures and folks turned out. And that was, I think, a good indication that people will turn out if they feel like their issues are being addressed. But structurally, they're not. Of course, turnout then goes down when politicians like Trudeau win and then, of course, you know, under deliver or bait and switch. But for the moment, they felt like they had an opportunity. And, you know, we did get cannabis as imperfect as as that was, for instance, on pardons. But we did get it. So, you know, I, I do fundamentally think it is, it's a, a class problem, and it, it does also, this explanation pushes back against the sort of folks, the common wisdom folks, especially online, will say, well, you know, if you don't vote, you don't get to complain, or, you know, you folks are just too lazy, and that's why they didn't vote, as if uh, this was a moral failing on the individual, not a structural failing of the political system.
0: We get a lot of that. Uh, you know, if you didn't vote, you can't complain. And when the voter, voter turnouts come out, usually the day after, there is a huge onus put on the folks that didn't get to the ballot. Let's talk a little bit about that. And we keep teasing it. Other reasons, perhaps people don't go to the ballot, not because they're not educated or, or wealthy and they don't have the time, because people are still turning in. But there are barriers, right? COVID, I think, was a, a big Barrier for a lot of people, and we did see a sharp drop off but looking back historically, so two thousand twenty one we had fifty nine percent of people vote in the federal election here in Canada in two thousand and eight. the vote was lower. we were at fifty eight okay fifty eight point eight so they're comparable. there was no covid there was harper um that could have played a huge role. But your theory earlier, I want to just challenge that a little bit or not challenge it, but it scares me because you said, you know, if there's something people are interested in or they think their needs are being addressed, they might turn out like they turn out in higher numbers. That scares the shit out of me when you look at the voter turnout in the last U.S. election. It was significantly higher than it normally was. So just to give uh, the audience an idea, in 2016, there was a a 54 percent voter turnout. Now, that's of people of voting age, not eligible, not necessarily eligible, but of voting age. And in 2020, it went from 54 percent to 62 percent. And that might not sound a lot. But when you're looking at historical numbers of voting and considering we are still in a pandemic, that is significant that means a lot of people now did they turn out because their needs were being met or were they fearful? So I'm struggling with this, David, if you can see me because on one hand it's like did, were they driven out to you know support Trump or support Biden? There wasn't a lot to support Biden on for me. It was more of a don't let Trump win. And it scares me that the idea of fear would drive people to the polls more than hope. But then again, they've they've trampled our hope a little bit, right, over and over again. We can thank Obama for that, I think.
1: I, I think there's a couple of things going on there, and I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I do think one of them is there was a, a sense of existential anxiety around the state and future of American democracy. And so people said, well, I'd better turn out because, you know, one of these guys might be A boring corporate Democrat, but the other was an authoritarian and probably a fascist and wants to end democracy. And so we better get our asses out because the stakes are high. And I think there's there's probably a lot of that. There was probably some substantive issue based turnout to I'm I'm, I'm as critical of, of Joe Biden as anybody. But there was a lot of hope around his union politics at the time. That's sort of been a mixed bag since he's won. But If you look at what he's done at the National Labor Relations Board, there's some indications that he does take it seriously, at least. Uh, You might agree or disagree with the Buy American plan, uh, but that was an attempt to try to bolster in the old-fashioned, you know, Canada Council sense for those uh, in Canada, uh, sort of domestic um, industry. So there was hope. And I, I remember talking to, I was covering um, this for the Frederick Ebert, Ebert Stiftung and I talked to a bunch of labor folks at the time who were, who were fairly excited. And so there was some hope there, especially contrasted with Trump. And then of course there was uh, some hope around his climate uh, plan, you know, informed as it was by the the sunshine folks. So there was some, some of that, but I do think a lot of it was just deep, anxiety around the existential threat that Trump posed to, to democracy. It'll be very fascinating to see what happens in 2024, whether or not they can keep that turnout. I have a feeling that they can't. I, I have a sense that it will go back down, especially if it's someone like DeSantis who's running. And uh, and, and so that will be short lived. So, you know, the, the ailment is still there. And I, I think that's, that's going to be similar in Canada that we're going to, we're going to continue to get fairly low turnout, and you know, the, you know, there are attempts to kind of boost it, but one of the things we've noticed is that he, th- they aren't particularly substantive attempts. Uh, you get meat Sing on TikTok, but you don't really get an, you know, an agenda that drives folks out. And I, I want to disabuse people of the notion that political parties inherently want high turnout. <laughs> They say they want high turnout because they have to say they want high turnout. What they really want is high turnout for their likely supporters. And one of the things the Liberal Party has gotten quite good at doing is targeting postal codes in neighborhoods where they know that folks are going to turn out and vote liberal or have a good chance of turning out and voting liberal. So they will target them and to hell with everybody else. And, and, and some liberals have admitted this privately and even publicly, that the liberals are very, very good at a quote-unquote efficient vote, that they can form a government, even a majority government, with a tiny fraction of voters, so they put their scarce resources into that. And par- and every party knows this. so you know, the next time parties say, you know, go get to the polls, realize that what they're actually doing behind the scenes is not trying to get everyone to the polls, it's trying to get their people to the polls.
0: Yeah, I I don't want to crush anyone. I probably already have with my other episodes. (laughs) But this is a tactic that is taught to NDP canvassers uh, right from the the lowest level is to go where you know, people are already voting for you. So forget about the folks that don't vote at all. And definitely don't try to wade into other people's territory and remind them when Voting day is, you know, 100%. David, it, it is a, a bit of a farce, and I actually find it ironic that, and I don't challenge this on on, on your theory because I do believe people think they were saving U.S. democracy, and and there is no doubt Trump would have been a blight on whatever we do call a democracy. But it's ironic that they will will come out and use their vote um, to elect a representative because. I think there's a challenge to be made, and there has been, that representative democracy isn't, in fact, democracy, especially under its current conditions. And that, again, goes back into asking ourselves why people don't vote. And when you ask a lot of people, and I'll admit, I have done this myself, I don't vote all the time. I often don't have anybody who deserves my vote. So that means they don't either represent my values or I don't trust them. And I think there's also a large amount of people now who don't just not trust the politicians. That's a mantra we've repeated for eons, you know, like be wary of any politician. But the actual elections itself, that's starting to permeate through society a distrust, you know, either if it's from a false majority so that the system doesn't work or that they really just can't actually trust the outcome of election. That seed has been sown as well. And so it's hard to ask people to go out in their day to cast a ballot, to line up in long lines, possibly expose themselves to covid when they, they're they not even sure the outcome will, will reflect what, what's actually happened. That's a huge problem. And I think it's a symptom that we just don't trust the whole system altogether, whether it's the people who are running it or the process that designs it. We really have this hesitancy to trust it anymore. And, and that's a huge problem in a representative democracy because we've given up our democratic rights almost entirely to this delegate that we send forth. That We don't trust. So we talked about voter turnout and we didn't do a a big contrasting comparison. We just did the U.S., but I'm looking online who has really high voter turnouts. Right. And obviously, Australia pops up. They have compulsory voting methods. You know, whether I think it's they use fines. So it is compulsory voting. They end up with an 89 percent voter turnout. But when you poll them, only 30 percent of them trust the government. So even though they're all going to the polls, they still don't trust what the outcome is. How does that even continue to be a democracy where you are reflected, if you're even going and casting a ballot for someone you you don't even trust when they get there? That's, that's a problem for me. It, it causes me to revisit, you know, not just the effects of capitalism on our democracy, whether it's an oligarchy or not, but... The true tenets of representative democracy. And I think over time, it's alienated us so much from our rights, our democratic rights, that we don't even know what democracy is anymore. Like, we don't understand its, its true purpose. And participation in the system was a huge part of that, you know, if we look at the, the birth of democracy, so to speak.
1: Uh, I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, I will say that, you know, in Canada, we have high integrity elections in the sense that we have a nonpartisan, uh, part uh, you know, a state arm's length state apparatus that that runs these things and reports to parliament, but isn't doesn't report to the government. That and we can trust them, but it's not exactly like we've built that in a way to go deep and encourage deep participation in our democracy. So the sort of like nuts and bolts of the thing is fine. But the distrust of the broader system that you get is not only understandable. I would be disappointed and surprised if people did trust it more broadly. I would sort of say, well, maybe you should have another look. And I, I do think there's a sort of there's a there's a lot of alienation there, and there is. I mean, I know this is such an easy, cheap textbook answer, but I also think there's a lot of lack of class consciousness that that the state in all of its arms, including the education system, suppress deliberately or or otherwise, or incidentally, because in a liberal democracy, it's it's in very few interests of the ruling folks to to create class consciousness for, which is to say the working class. (laughs) There's lots of class consciousness um, uh, for the rentier class, right, for the capital class, not, not so much for the working class, and that's the way folks like it. And the best way to protect those structures, of course, is, is a representative democracy with with fairly high barriers to entry. And if you look at who ends up serving in legislatures, fairly well-to-do folks, uh, lawyers, doctors, uh, business folks, you know look who ends up running finance ministries, so on and so forth. And, and there is a political class. And because we have... Uh, a politics that encourages incumbency as well, it you know, becomes fairly, fairly entrenched. There's not a huge turnout, higher than some places, but there's not a huge turnover. So you have class interests that are protected. And so you're right. I mean, I, I advocate for more participatory democracy uh, because I think that that's the best way to set an agenda that reflects what people truly want and to develop those preferences and uh, you know, checks power. Which, which we don't do particularly well in this country. So I, I do think that, you know, our democracy is deeply flawed and the electoral system, uh, you know, maintains those flaws. There are better ways to do it. And, and I'll close on this point for this section. I also think you can't divorce any of this conversation from a conversation about economics and, and the economy, right? I and mean, we tend to talk about democracy in this country without talking about the economy, but... Uh, you know, we we have this idea that well, this is democracy. This is um, showing up, casting your ballot, uh, and this that's that's business over there. And, and you know, home finance is a different thing. But of course, you know, having uh, the time, the capacity, the resources to be political is an economics issue, right? It's a fundamentally a material issue. And so in mean, part of the struggle is making sure that people have their material needs met so that they can be citizens, so that they can be residents, so that they can participate in the political system. Because if you can't exercise the right, you don't have that right. And we have all of these negative rights. We have all of these rights to participate. But then, of course, we turn around and, and folks don't have the capacity to do that, the resources to do that. So effectively, they don't have those rights. And political parties are, again, a huge part of the problem and a huge part of why Trust is low, because you know every four years they come around and ask for your vote. Five years, maybe three years, two and a half years lately. God help us! Um, but then they just sort of disappear, right? And and they don't care. So the, there is a sort of structural alienation, both economically and substantively, uh, around um, you know, uh, democratic institutions, because it's in the interests of of folks who are well off to, to keep it that way. And it's it's pretty deeply disconcerting, right? And I feel it too. You know, I I, I should say this: I, I was excited to vote in the Ottawa municipal election. I, um, you know, I turned out to vote for Catherine McKenney. I was excited to vote for Catherine. I was an active. Um, supporter in the sense that I was out boosting online, Catherine McKinney. I was talking to folks about Catherine McKinney and I genuinely was like, I am actually psyched to go and do this. And I tried to think to myself, when was the last time I felt like that? I've been voting since I was 18. I was like, Oh, it was n- never. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I'm, 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 I you mean, know, when it comes to politics, I know when this country, uh, more than average, cause it's my job. I've been in it for, over I've been doing it for more than eight, well 20 years now more than 20 years now started in high school I've been excited about a candidate once once <laughs> like what does that tell you
0: that's that's troubling cuz I'm trying to think of when I was excited to vote and like even when I got to vote for myself twice <laughs> I wasn't all that excited I mean the novelty wore off by the second time like checking your own name has a certain I don't know thrill to it, I suppose. Um, Even though I never saw myself as a politician, I still hate politicians, but it wasn't exciting. I knew I was going to lose. So that wasn't, uh, yeah, I drew no hope from my vote ever. I've never voted for a winner. I'm just trying to, no, never. I've never, ever, ever voted for a winner. And I've really disengaged on electoral politics of late. And I hold a little bit of shame in that i think because you know i'm a political science student i have worked in politics for quite a while and i've driven it into people many many times over how important your vote is but i don't buy that anymore and i want to go back and revisit a bunch of your points and if i definitely we got to go back to participatory politics you mentioned that as something that's critical and we'll If I don't, you better remind me because I'd like to explore that more because it is the alternative to what we're talking about. But let's go back to who we elect and why we tend to elect very wealthy people, very similar images, shall we say, a lot of that stems from capitalism and its uh, preference for wealthy people and the meritocracy that it's instilled in us in some of us that, you know, if you're successful, you are rich, you are wearing a suit, you have properties, plural. That means you know what you're doing and you you can go make decisions on my behalf. But there's two ways to look at representation. Right. But that that are not necessarily realized in politics. Right. A representative, a representative of a certain set of the population can either be the best of amongst them, but, you know, that's problematic. Who decides what is best? Capitalism, again, like I've said, decides the rich is best, and we know they are not making decisions in our best interest. Or we could look at representative democracy and our representative as being a true reflection of the population they're representing, that isn't happening. I mean, there'll be a few exceptions. We've definitely seen people trying to challenge that grassroots efforts, trying to upend that. But the money that is involved in politics and running a campaign, plus the mindset of people who have a certain view of success, leaders, it's really led to the same old delegates. But, spoiler, that's by design. That is was by design right from the get-go. If we go way back to Robespierre and in France, there was a certain task they had at hand and they did not want to give this decision to the masses. They were not confident the masses would decide what to do. And so they decided that a certain level-headed sect of the population would be sent forth to make these Prudent decisions on our behalf. And we can go to the United States uh, with James Madison. Same thing. It was explicitly done to rein in the chaos of the masses. That we were never meant to be educated or involved in the process enough to make good decisions. They never intended us for. To be a part of that system, um, it was it was created to secure the powerful's position, and we now have entrenched it so far. It's I think I feel like it's all we can envision. And just to give people an idea, because not everyone took political science, and I don't want to bore people with political history. But if you go back to the Greeks, who had their problems, right? Um, it wasn't a true democracy for many reasons that I'm not going to really get into, but. The idea was a direct democracy. You were involved in all these decisions and you had a vote. Every person had a vote, not just that, but every person really had somewhat equal opportunity, all citizens. So that's a disclaimer, had equal opportunity and onus to take office to make those hard decisions, to understand the system so closely that they could step into any one of these roles and be trusted to make the right decision. And there was a sense of you know select communitarianism where you understood that your decisions absolutely had to benefit the most amount of people, not yourself. And there were safeguards in place, should you make decisions that benefited you and not others. That's all gone out the window with representative democracy. Right. The safeguards are gone. Right. We we have only every four years to oust someone from their job should they have blown it completely. And We're so far removed from the process that it's no wonder that no matter even if you go to university and get a degree, you still don't have that political understanding of the decisions in front of you. And I think that's relevant when people flock to the polls to save democracy. And that means voting for Joe Biden. Um, You know, uh, to be fair, they don't have another option. The other option was Trump. But it, it spurred enough of them that they thought they were saving something. And I I challenge that because as long as we remain in this representative democracy, I think we'll just be further and further removed. And it's almost like we're happy to have given it over. And yeah, like, and this is further exasperated, right? By the fact that political education or the discussion of real politics and its impact is really not mainstream. It's not introduced early on. You usually have to pay for that kind of education. And, um, I can see a lot of people around me who once even took interest losing it, you know, and and I think that was always the intention. Like you said, like voter turnout really isn't the goal of, of the elected.
1: It's to remain in power. We don't, I mean, a liberal democracy, I mean, I've argued this for a long time, is is very thin on politics, right? It's very thick on politics. On being left alone on you know, rights around commerce and inclu- you know, encouraging life of, of production and consumption, but it's very thin on political citizenship. It's effectively an afterthought. So, well, you're allowed to do it, but it's not expected and uh, it's not a regular part of, of you know, your day-to-day life and it's not meant to be, it's, it's not encouraged and it's not supported. And so you know, the, the Greek model is is so alien to us because it was, as you mentioned, communitarian. Uh, we don't really have that, and in, in fact, uh, it used to incidentally be a bit of a Tory you know, right-wing value. But sort of, you know, contemporary conservatism has gone a different way, and so we don't we don't have that. And there there are moments where folks do try to foster something more like that. I just finished writing a piece on on co leadership, and talked a little bit about the Green Party federally. Now, the Green Party has its problems. They are well-documented. They are numerous. But a couple of campaigns are running co-leadership style. Now, that's a a phenomenon that exists around the world. It's not super common, but exists in Scotland and Wales and Belgium and Germany, New Zealand. It's typical to green parties, but not exclusive to them. And it's built on this idea, incidentally rooted in Republican Rome, uh, who had dual consuls for quite a long time. And other offices. in uh, okay, well, we're going to have two folks, and they're going to exercise equal power, and they're going to check one another, and they're going to introduce some friction to the system, and they're going to slow down, and they're going to make it uh, consensus-based and a little more thoughtful, and they're not going to have this sort of ego-driven centralization. And some green parties, including the one here, will go so far as to talk about spokespersons, Quebec Solidaire does this as well in Quebec, Rather than leaders, and so the folks who turn up to lead the party are actually the spokespeople of the party, not the leaders in the sense that you think of a leader in the Liberals or the NDP or or the Conservatives. So they would they would know, challenge
0: you on that that assertion, right? Though
1: I'm they sure would they say would. they
0: represent their members and they are just speaking for their the values of their members.
1: Of course, filtered through them, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's filtered, much in the way that you know. Um, uh, Robosphere, uh, for the time that he kept his head, embodied the the will of the French people, right? I mean, this is how people are always willing to come along and say that they embody the good of the nation. Uh, you know, Louis XIV was sort of very famous for this. So incidentally, was Louis XVI. We saw how that ended for him. I mean, at some point, people do have enough with this. Um, hopefully, it doesn't... Um, you know, it doesn't always end as drastically as the French Revolution, but but there are points at which people have had enough and say so. But but there are attempts to push back against this, but they are few and far between and they're alien to us because, again, we just fundamentally aren't accustomed to it. And, you know, the thing I keep arguing and pushing is a more participatory system in which, um, you know, citizens are able to agenda set, check power, and and get the things that they want. But that's, to some extent... Insofar as we're going to need to have parties, uh, assuming we do, we could have that debate too, Um, the parties need to want to go all in on democracy. But again, they, they haven't, you know, I just finished reading Matt Fodder's book on on the NDP in the last 20 years of, of the party, sort of from Leighton to Singh. And one of the points he, he makes is that, look, the NDP quote-unquote professionalized in those years, which incidentally meant moving towards the center and investing more and more power in the leader's office and in con- the consulting class and so on, that all came at the expense of grassroots party democracy. Incidentally, look what it got them. N- nothing, right? Fourth place in the legislature. They've got to deal with the liberals, but that was... Um, I'm not super convinced that the liberals weren't going to do a lot of that stuff anyway, and the party... Uh, happen to be in a position where they could get it. But, you know, if that's what you're relying on, hoping you're going to end up in third or fourth place with the seats that the Liberals need is not a good party strategy long term. So, you know, the, the, that's, well, is it really, really worth it to have sold out the grassroots to get this? And of course, the answer is no, it's it's absurd. Uh, so, but this is, this is what parties do. The Liberals did it as well. Uh, when Justin Trudeau came along, uh, you could vote for Trudeau as a liberal, quote unquote, supporter. You didn't need to buy a membership. You didn't need to take part. In the party, they got your data and they got your vote. But again, that's no—that is not meaningful engagement in any way. That's not grassroots democracy. That's American Idol. You know, call in, pay your two ninety nine. In this case, you didn't have to pay. Cast your vote and then go back to, to the show. It's not democracy at all. It's it's a reality program. And this is this is what we've done. And so uh, again, to echo your point, it's the parties don't have an interest typically in the grassroots because they want to control the show. And that's true of the broader liberal democracy. Our institutions don't have an interest in participatory democracy because elites want to run the show. They don't want the friction that comes with involving day-to-day folks and governance. My pushback against that in the in the elite's own interest is, what do you think happens in the long run? Nothing good, nothing good. And it might manifest in, in ways such as the trucker occupation, which I would never defend, but uh, it might manifest in ways like that. It might manifest in the ways of a righteous uh, strike that we're going to see in Ontario of, of workers who are getting absolutely screwed and abused by the Ford government. It might manifest in in deep apathy and the sort of disintegration of of democratic institutions to the point where they don't even exist anymore, and the state kind of withers away. It might uh, uh, end up in revolution, as it has in the past. We don't really know. But none of those are outcomes we should want. We should want the, the, that grassroots participatory democracy to, to drive a more healthy, agonistic democracy because you want friction, um, but ultimately in a sort of you know, productive way. But you either do it now the hard way or later the really hard way. And so people like me are going out there saying, you should do it the hard way now because doing it the hard way later is so much worse. But of course, elites don't buy that. They're like, no, no, we got this. Don't worry. Just like we had Brexit, right?
0: Those kinds of reassurances, I don't think people are buying anymore um, because our lives are just crumbling, right? Like with the cost of living going up and just the state that folks are living in, I do think not a violent revolution is wanted, but I do want a political revolution. I think there's just so much about the system that we have created. It's so entrenched. The power is so solidified and concentrated that it has to be built from scratch. I mean, that's where I'm at now. I think a lot of that had to do with my involvement with the NDP and the disillusionment the disillusionment that happens uh, once you see how these so-called people's parties work uh, because they don't. And I kind of get a little cautious around the co-leadership. Like if properly applied, I understand that perhaps if they were to maybe not competing interests, but not drawn from the same campaign, it would be hard for me to trust two people who met in back rooms, decided to run a campaign together, especially if one of them is Elizabeth May, I'm going to be honest, that they would that it would be a true kind of working, balanced relationship. And it wouldn't just essentially be two people rubber stamping one another to add more validity to it. I also take that kind of stand with the framing of people as a spokesperson rather than a leader. I'm the opposite. I think I would rather them just be honest that I am a leader of a political institution and I'm doing what's best for my party. Because, you know, Jagmeet does what's in his best interest politically and the machine behind him do what they think might win seats or at least sustain their positions. But it's not in our best interest still. But if we believe they're our spokesperson, Like the way that we all got to vote for Justin Trudeau, like as leader of the Liberal Party, that kind of participatory level, it adds this faux validity, right, that they are their spokespeople. They are speaking for us, but they are still not. They are still not. None of the other things that push them to the forefront have been removed. So meaning I don't trust them. Right. It would still require them to make backroom deals. It still required them to spend a lot of money to get where they are. There's still the same people making those decisions, likely putting the wrong people in power. And now they've just kind of sold themselves as the people's representative when, when none of them are. I want to go back to the participatory democracy and and ideas around that. A lot of people I think when we talk about putting direct democracy into the system that we have, it's typically in the form of a referendum. I think that's what people most understand that you get to go and decide yes or no on a very specific item, not just like, hey, Joe, you go make my decisions for four years. Here's how I feel about now the problem. Everyone's like, that sounds like a great idea. I think a lot of people, like, it costs money and we can, like, I'm sure there's opponents. But in theory, it sounds really great. A lot of countries do have. Referendums included in their general elections. So not only are you choosing the person, but there is evidence to where the population sits on a whole bunch of issues. So you don't just get a blank mandate. You have to at least challenge the polls. You know, you can still go against them. You can still do what only 10% of people wanted, but that's a little bit more politically dangerous. However, the tyranny of the majority still exists. And if we come back to the understanding that a lot of people still are not politically aware, we have problems. And I think the one thing that was that is thrown at me the most when I slam representative democracy and, and push for a more direct form, which I think has to come through socialism, um, side note, uh, Prop 8 is used as an example. Now, that was in California. It was... I I'm, I'm going to get my my details kind of probably hazy but the end result was hatred won. You know, the vote was put to the people on g- gay marriage, which is just same-sex marriage, sorry. <laughs> same-sex marriage and that that result was very poor. It, and so then that, you know, people who use that example turn around and say, well, Perhaps we do need more level-headed people in power making decisions like this that abide by the charter, the Constitution, or or the spirit of the Constitution. I didn't—other than educating people and doing the work that we we know we all have to do politically to bring people around um, to make the right decisions, like, there are inherent difficulties with— a more direct form of democracy as well. I'll admit it's definitely not a complete solution. You want to comment?
1: Well, I should say, yeah, I've got, I've got a lot of thoughts. I mean, I, I, I uh, surfeit, this is part of my problem. I mean, I am deeply skeptical of, of referenda. I don't typically like them.
0: Is that the plural of referendum?
1: Well, I here's the thing. I mean, I I think referenda or referendums are both perfectly acceptable. I'm not pedantic about it. I just <laughs> I just go with referenda at a at a habit, but referendum is perfectly fine. Um I don't I'm not pedantic about it. People shouldn't be. But uh you know, part of the problem is it is a reflection and recreation of a kind of antagonistic politics that I don't think is very productive. I trained as a deliberative Democrat, and deliberative democracy is fundamentally just reason-giving-based democracy where we sit down, not exclusively, but at times, as as moral and political co-equals, and we discuss what we want to do, and we form preferences, and we weigh the evidence, and we talk about not just reason, but emotion, and then we kind of figure out what to do by giving each other reasons back and forth. And uh, you get these deliberative citizens assemblies that act on sort of consensus or semi-consensus to try to come up with decisions. They've happened in Canada. We had them on electoral reform in BC and Ontario. Uh, they happen in Ireland around uh, a few different things um, successfully. And it produces fairly good knowledge. It builds citizenship uh, and capacity and uh, it... it produces pretty good politics and policy outcomes, which is a far better way of doing, you know, participatory democracy than just having people, okay, run headlong into one another and smash the, the shit out of one another and whoever gets 51% wins the day. Um, you know, participatory budgeting is another great way. This happens across the country in municipalities and across the world, sort of pioneered in Porto Alegre, well, you know, pioneered in Greece. But, you know, in, in recent memory in, in Porto Alegre in Brazil, and it brings folks together to say, okay, well, how do you want to spend this X percentage of the budget because you know best at the community level? Again, an idea that conservatives used to at least pretend to care about, you know, like communities should decide. Well, like, great, so give communities the power to make decisions, <laughs> like choosing budgets. Um, but, you know, those tend to be pretty productive ways of doing things. They take longer, they're more expensive, they're more involved, they're more difficult, but you could do it. And whenever I'm talking to politicians or I've got a room full of decision makers, I always float this idea. What if the country had a national, standing, federated, representative, citizens assembly of folks who were drawn by lot, by what's known as sortition, random selection, like like the Greeks did, um, to come together for a period of time to make decisions about what we should be talking about. Here are the top X number of issues, the top 10 issues we care about. Here are some solutions, we think, to the problems that they pose. And we're to put pressure on politicians at the representative level to actually deal with those things, right? We could do that. We could agenda set through participatory democracy. Politicians hate these ideas because they say, well, we're elected to make those decisions. And I talk to a lot of constituents. I'm like, oh, you do, do you? Which ones? You know, Their like, echo chamber. Like, Exactly. Right. Or the ones who give me money. And so, you know,
0: $1,700 a plate dinners.
1: Exactly. A lot of talking going on, I'm sure. Exactly. Like, you know, all right. I think that's bullshit, but okay, whatever you say. But, uh, you know, these things are are extraordinary. And one of the great things about it is contrary to to what some people think about me, and and this is my own fault because of the way I wrote my book and what it was called, but I I do not think people are, are... you know, incapable of, of practicing self-government. I don't think that people are inherently, uh, um, you know, lack the capacity to, to, to participate in politics. I think people inherently have the capacity to know what's good for them. Uh, they lack the, the opportunity to, you know, build skill sets and refine those skill sets. We know from political science research, a great you know, seminal paper called um, Beyond SES, uh, Social Economic Status, you know, it was a, it was a resource model of, of political participation. Basically, it's like people need to have the opportunity to build these skill sets and they need to have the materials to exercise them. But when you give people the opportunity, they show up and they do a good job across the board. And so we need to have a sort of less patronizing, more inclusive politics that then brings everyone together. Now, we could do this, but no one seems to like the idea in the political mainstream because it would challenge the power of the parties and the representatives who don't want that friction. But I would like to introduce that friction. I just want it to be in a sort of productive way, which is what you get with the deliberative model, um, rather than a a fairly destructive way, which is what you tend to get with with, um, referendums, referenda, referendums. But um, I will say this in in closing, uh, that said, I think a healthy democratic polity doesn't just deliberate. It doesn't just have courts, it doesn't just have representation, it has you know, civil society movements, it has protests, it has civil disobedience, it has all of these points of friction that balance power in a pluralist society so that no one, no one, no one, not the courts, not the politicians, not the citizens' assemblies, certainly not the market, has a, a disproportionate or unreasonable amount of power. And right now, part of the problem is that power has pooled. It's the way that the reason I'm a market socialist, and we someday I'll come back and we can have the market socialism debate. But the, part of the reason I'm a market socialist in the sort of Nordic model um, is that I I think it's a fairly good way of balancing power. I'm nervous at sort of state socialism to some extent because of, of again, the distribution of power. But so, you know, the, the, that's just by way of getting at the principle of what, what you ultimately want is that democratic powers and capacities and decision-making opportunities are distributed in a, in a decentralized way among the population. That would solve a lot of our problems.
0: I love that idea. A few points, like still to do that, accessibility and time and energy still play into that, right? So if that were to be done, certainly there'd have to be steps taken to make sure it was a as accessible as possible, and that people were not burdened by attending these, because that's still the same problem that's uh, disjointing politics today. But we have the tools to make that happen. Certainly, we have the money to make that happen. I like that idea, because although a lot of people out there, you know, might be in conversations with their neighbors and absolutely horrified, or they read the letters to the editor, and they see that the viewpoints that are out there, even though You know, we should know better by this point. And so I think there is a healthy fear, especially after generations and generations and generations of meritocracy and individualism and unchecked hatred and bigotry that have gone on, that there is a fear of giving power to the masses or what the outcomes of these um, deliberations were would be or the viewpoints that would be raised. But I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary because when you immerse yourself with other people's opinions, and like David said, not just hear the facts, because those can be manipulated so many ways. I could have given you the statistics I gave you earlier in so many different ways to to make our point. But the emotions and the lived experience that you get from hearing the impacts it has, different policies might have on your neighbor, your neighbor's family. Um, That's important. And I think we often... When we're talking about political education, we think of schools. We still go, oh, it's the government's job, right? So if we only taught politics in school or if unions, if they would just educate their workers a little better, they'd all be leftists, right? If they would just understand the value of unions and the evils of the market, they would stop voting in the way that they do. But that doesn't come from the way that we're doing. It has to come through genuine discussions. You have to come to these realizations yourself. And the only way to undo the impacts of this structural imbalance of power that we've had, I think, is to get to each other on that one-on-one level, to feel like we are masters of our own fate, but also that we owe our community something. And if we don't immerse ourselves in our community in that way or, or you know, have those hard discussions and maybe live through bad decisions, at least it adds validity to it and people start to trust it and engage with it more Because for so long, you know, it goes against everything we've been taught, right? David, don't talk about politics, money or what religion, probably a slew of other things the powerful people don't want us talking about. But in reality, we should have been talking about all those things from the get go, openly, as often as possible. You know, I know there's some people that live in families that never talk about politics. Like I can't relate at all, right? That's just not my upbringing. It's... it's, you know, I'm a bit of a political junkie by birth, but the, these conversations aren't happening. And so the idea of being drawn by law and being supported in, in in going into these situations, I think, has a lot of promise. I I don't doubt that the reception amongst the powerful has been a bit cold, though, David. I'm sorry that people aren't taking to this idea um, as well as they could, but I think it has a Absolutely, a lot of merit. And I think there is a lot of value going back to the roots of democracy, even though they were problematic. You know, the Greeks often are discounted because of the level of bigotry involved with who was in the polis, who was not. But if we look at today, and I said I wouldn't talk about this, but I am, um, we exclude the same people, essentially, right? We exclude marginalize people just by way of creating enough barriers. We exclude foreigners, you know, the same way the Greeks did. Um, And so there isn't a whole lot that separates that reality. And I think with the technological advancements, especially if capitalism has given us anything, (laughs) well, workers gave us it all, but you know what the people are selling out there, right? That capitalism gave us this and that, but it also gave us the tools that we can go back to direct democracy. No, we don't all need to be in the same room. That's a logistical nightmare. But we know that that's not necessary anymore. Right. I think that's one of the selling features of representative democracy is how could you possibly have, you know, 38 million people talk about something and come out to a rational decision. But, you know, I think David offers a little bit of a compromise between everybody being fully immersed in it all the time. And com- just this disconnected sending a representative every four years, right? So that's certainly something I hope you continue exploring because...
1: Oh, I'm going to push it. <laughs> I'm going to push it. And incidentally, you know, there was a reason Marx... Well, there are a couple of reasons. But there was a reason Marx thought that the revolution would happen in industrialized societies first, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, capitalism provides abundance. You know, one of the things I often say is, look... Um, you know, scarcity, uh, you know, say the all the market's about scarcity, but it's not, right? It's about abundance. Our problem isn't scarcity anymore. Our problem is a distribution of abundance. And when people go around saying it's scarcity, what they want you to, to think is that, well, you know, we, you can't have nice things because we have to have constraints when the fact is that people at the top are soaking up all the nice things. Um, it's the distribution of abundance that's the problem. And that abundance is the same abundance that can be used to... Uh, provide the resources we need to have more participatory democracy, as you as you suggest. It's just a matter of, of will and fighting for it. And that's, you know, that's in the hours of the day that I have on the side to to do these sorts of things. I, I try to, to push some of that. You know, those hours are getting fewer and fewer as, as I get busier and busier, but I'm, I'm still on it.
0: We're getting near the end of the time that we kind of allotted to this discussion. I feel like we've already kind of sidemarked like three other potential episodes where so much more exploration needs to be done. And, you know, essentially that's what we do all the time. Folks like you and I, right? Just explore these. But one of the questions I did want to try to tackle before we sign off is what I struggled with from the very beginning and what made me reach out to you and say, like, I want to do an episode on low voter turnout, not because I want to get more people to the ballot. That's a side discussion. I don't really, I want to know from you and, you know, our audience can chime in on social media later. At what point does this system become illegitimate? Because I, I posted a TikTok. I wanted to explain to people the consent factor of a representative democracy. So you go to the ballot, you've given up your democratic right, right? Long ago, someone gave it up for you, in fact. But when you go and cast that ballot, you are consenting to the system you're under because when you're born, nobody asks you, you're just under rule, right? But when you start participating in this, this is how we give that stamp of approval, essentially. It's almost, we don't talk about it anymore because it's just a given. But I want to challenge that given because at some point there has to be a measure where if like in my area, if only 17 percent of people are voting, why do I have to look at my MP, who was my opponent? So (laughs) a bit of sour grapes here. I'll be honest. Why do I have to look at him as my legitimate representative? Why is there no recourse for me or us as a people to say, stop, we need an overhaul We have told you now by vote, right? You don't give us any other mechanism, really valid mechanism, other than taking to the street, which you have made nearly impossible at this point. So we've just stopped voting for you. We've stopped respecting you. We've stopped listening to you. We stopped trusting you. At what point do we stop this sham Like, and say the system is not working and we have to redesign it? We have to rebuild it or we have to fucking burn it down. Because obviously the people in power are not going to say, oh, well, you're right, that's 20 percent. We've hit that low mark and we're going to have to just rethink our whole representative democracy. But at what point then, David, like how bad does it have to get where only the richest and the retired have time or care enough or see any value in voting anymore? Like, do we just keep going and going until until what? Until we get those those. Choices that you say you don't want.
1: I mean, it's interesting because the it's it's a question that's being asked in the mainstream as well. I mean, there are even sort of old Toryish centrist columnists who are doing a lot of hand wringing about this because they worry about it as well. I mean, they're coming from a very different place, but there is a just sort of a broader worry about this. Uh, the fact is, the system will continue to be formally, and I stress this, formally legitimate, as long as these things are run within the rules. One person could turn out, cast a ballot, and that would be As long as they did it fairly,
0: right? Exactly. There was no cops at the polls. That was a fair and free election.
1: Exactly. And that's the bar. But that's obviously a very low bar. We could talk about sort of moral legitimacy and say, okay, well, if you've got 80% of people who would prefer someone else or who at the very least didn't actively support the person who wins, then we've got a real serious moral legitimacy problem. We need to do something about that. And so I, I would say we're at that, we're there already. We're at that point already. And so that, that's the conversation we need to have about structural reformation to try to, to change a bunch of different things. And then the, the second part is, you know, the way the system works is that once the party has has formed government with the confidence of the house, it continues to exercise that its authority as long as it maintains the confidence of the House, unless it hits the constitutional requirement for an election every X years, depending on the Constitution we're talking about, five years federally. Uh, now, we might say, well, okay, that sounds... And so people like me will say, well, that's how it works. And then we'll say, asterisk... That's sort of premise on the idea that members of parliament would have the spines and the capacity to say this leader in this party doesn't work anymore. We're actually going to switch to someone else or force a general election. But they don't do that anymore. So the system is is broken on its own terms because the party, um, you know, MPs have become functionaries of the party. Opposition MPs have more interest in, you know, trying to wait it out till they're in a better position rather than tanking a government that might not be performing well or might not be representing folks well. And so that's cynical as well. It's a little bit more rambunctious in other countries, Australia, for instance, and obviously the United Kingdom, we've seen what happens. Although deeply problematic in the United Kingdom, they went through three prime ministers with no election when clearly, clearly they needed a general election. Uh, but they were able to maintain the government because the conservatives maintain the, the confidence of the House. And that's the parliamentary system working. But a lot of po- folks looked at it and said, well, that's just absurd, though, because it's clearly not working and people are suffering. So, you know, we, that's where we need to have a serious rethink about not just the rules, but norms that underwrite the system that are, again, kind of rotten. And that's a that's a big conversation that we can hopefully get into someday Um, my, my, my dog is, she's been such a well-behaved little pup. Now she's giving me the shakes. Um, but you know, we can have that conversation someday because we do need to have a look at both the formal rules and norms because something's got to give, because I think we're already at the point where we look at the system and say, this isn't working and it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. So we need to fix it now because if we just leave it, it's going to be an even more of a disaster than, than it already is.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear you think, you know, we're at a bit of a tipping point, Because I'll be honest, I'm really cautious of, the or skeptical perhaps, of the efforts to just simply increase voter turnout, right? We see that putting it online does have an impact. Social media campaigns on how to vote make an impact. Going door to door and driving out the vote in a more effective, big organizing way does have an impact on voter turnout. Better representation, you know, people that look and sound like us. But if they're still going to walk into the same system that I take issue with that we've gone over, then I think that's just adding another layer of false legitimacy and prolonging the time that we that we will actually get to somewhere that is a true democracy, that it's just the same way the Tories are staying in power in the UK. Right. It's just they're using that system to legitimize their power when it's anything but so. You know that's definitely another conversation for another day on, on how we get there. I, I originally asked you to come on. I think months ago we were trying to get a discussion on whether electoral politics was an avenue for political change. I feel like we still had that discussion.
1: I've softened a little bit on that. I, I've I've. Even even from a few months ago, have become increasingly skept- skeptical of electoralism, but yeah, that's we, we can get into that someday too.
0: I know. I te- you were supposed to be my opponent, I think, in a debate of sorts, but I started reading your tweets, thinking I'm going to smoke this guy with his own tweets because he, you know, he doesn't seem to be buying his argument anymore at all, or at least the argument you were going to be pegged to represent there. But. Um, I really appreciate this conversation, David, and I hope the audience does this well and starts to kind of explore how they feel about democracy. Because there is a large portion of people on the left still very committed to our form of government, mostly centrist, that still look at this as very valid, something to save. Uh, we just need to drive more voters out, maybe educate them a little more politically, but it just doesn't solve much of the problems that we've raised during this discussion at all. So it was a conversation worth having. And I think we've turned it around from, whoa, look at these voter turnouts. They're awful. But this is the first time I looked at them in a way where it was promising that they were low because Although I know a lot of economic and other factors play into people not getting to the polls, I want to believe a large portion of people are disillusioned, rightfully disillusioned. And like you say, are at the point where they are questioning the legitimacy of liberal liberal democracy. So if this does nothing but you know continue that conversation as well as the ones that you generate through your great work, then... I believe we're on a path, but it is going to take some considerable effort, right, to kind of open this can of worms properly to have a, a genuine challenge of what we have long considered a healthy democracy, right, one to even spread around the world and brag about. Um, when in fact, I think we've similarly destroyed it here in our conversation. <laughs> Sorry.
1: There's more. There's more work to do. Then there's just more work to do.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you're willing to do it. I'm willing to do it. And, you know, audience, if you're listening, we're hoping that you're also ready to do it. Um, That is the impetus of this show is to get you folks to look at different methods of disruption, to understand the structures of power that we're within. And, you know, just to challenge it in any shape or form, Uh, because sitting it alone is really not doing us very good at all. David, do you have any parting words on democracy uh, before we sign off?
1: I'll just close on this. Uh, it, democracy is, is a practice. That's fundamentally what it is. It's a practice. And it's a practice that takes resources. And we can't divorce uh, you know, the idea of democracy from its practice. And we can't divorce the idea of democracy from the material resources that are required to make citizens full participants in self-government. And the more we can talk about that, the better.
0: And we will. Thank you, David.
1: Fantastic. My pleasure.
0: Like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon backslash BP of Disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of Disruption.